I mean, you've just got guns, an iron river of guns flowing down from the United States to Mexico, and then it carries on into Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, and then down to Colombia, Venezuela, Brazil, you know, this kind of huge amount of guns, um, and, and to extremely violent, you know, criminals and extremely violent conflict. Tifa, how are you this Tuesday, random Tuesday afternoon? I hope you're doing well out there in the ether. If you're listening in the future, what's up? Does Nina Turner become Ohio's uh, 11th District Congresswoman? Holy shit, I hope the answer is yes. Yes, we're awaiting returns on that very, very important election. But for now, it is time to take a break and talk about a very savory, wonderful topic. Um of drug cartels and the failed drug war that is running amok throughout the Americas. Oh my God, isn't that great? Just so, you know, this is a comedy show ultimately. No, we have such a good next 40 minutes. Um, I am so, so thrilled to bring you our guest. Uh, we've been talking a lot about Latin American politics and and needing to have um, more journalists on who are doing the work, uh, putting, their, putting their lives on the line. Um, and so I'm so happy uh, to have Yoan Grillo to join us for the hour. Um, and and did I make that an hour? I said 40 minutes like a second ago. I know, <laughs> poor guy, this guy. He had to listen to three minutes of the intro music. It was great. Um, but if you're here, thank you for being here. Remember, um, this is a Patreon first episode. That's right. So please, if you like this bonus content, if you know that Francesca is actually not in her studio right now, she's visiting her mom. Should she be hanging out with her mom? Yeah, in theory. I mean, you know, parents, what do you, yeah. You're alive. Great. You know, like so. But anyway, if you like this bonus content, um, hey, become a patron, patreon.com slash habituation room. Thank you so much in advance for everyone who has taken the plunge. Um, and, and I'm so happy to be able to have these deep dive conversations with you all. And again, hey, if you're here, send in questions. I would love to read them live. Um, send in questions after the fact. If you can't become a patron, you're listening to this in the future when everyone can listen to it. Thank you so much. I get times are hard. Unemployment benefits are running out. Just write this podcast a five-star review. Tell me why you like it and why it's worth me just sweating my tits off right now. My God, my God. Okay, I'm done. Without further ado, let's bring him in. Uh, he is a journalist and a writer based in Mexico City, specializing on crime and drug working for outlets, including, or drugs, I believe it's not drug working, the inner work, anyway. He's worked for the New York Times, National Geographic, Time Magazine, Esquire, CNN, Reuters, Al Jazeera, Houston Chronicle, Associated Press, Letras Libres, and many others. He's the author of the books, Blood, Gun, Money, How America Arms Gangs and Cartels, just out this year, Gangster Warlords, Drug Dollars, Killing Fields, and the New Politics of Latin America, which I have, and it's wonderfully chilling, and El Narco, uh, Inside Mexico's Criminal Insurgency, which I did read on vacation, and it was very, very good, and suddenly I didn't feel like I was on vacation anymore. Uh, please welcome Johan Grillo. Hey. Hey, Francesca. Good, good to be here. Thanks for the Oh, internet. my God. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, you are somewhere in Mexico City. Uh, I'm sure you have to move every three months to protect your own safety. And or you're like seven foot tall. I can't every time I read a book of yours, uh, Johan, I'm always thinking about just how much cajones it takes or cojones, not cajones. It takes to do the kind of reporting that you do. And I'm like, this guy must be huge. This guy is jacked. Like what? <laughs> um, not, not the case. Not the case. No, I just try to be nice to people. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time interviewing gangsters, interviewing killers, um, interviewing victims as well, families, mothers, a lot of mothers. Um, a lot of people who, who pursuing, you know, kids who have disappeared adult children have disappeared um and and yes yeah, it's a crazy crazy world i you know it's not something i planned to do um i kind of found myself 20 years ago good of a mm -hmm. mexico city and 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 this fell into covering crime and drugs and it just took me on a, on a kind of crazy journey um that keeps on going 
Damn. And and I know like Mexico is probably one of the two most dangerous places in the world to be a journalist. Uh, if it's like rivaling Afghanistan for many, many years. Um, and so it is not easy work. Um, as a gringo, how are you? Re- how are you received differently? Do you feel like you get a little bit of a pass because there's like, well, this guy, you know, maybe I'll if I talk to him, maybe I'll meet Sean Penn. <laughs> as uh, as El Chapo Guzman <laughs> yeah. uh, did one eventually. Well, like I mean, yeah, Mexico's been horrific for journalists the last twenty years. Um, now, most of the victims of the murders have been journalists from the small towns or the cities on the front line of the violence. So. There's a bit of a difference between, you know, inside Mexican journalism, which is Mexican journalism is fantastic and is a very, very rich tradition of Mexican journalism, both at a local level. I mean, from from people working for small town newspapers or community newspapers, um, right up to some of the really big uh, kind of radio you know, stars or TV stars. But there's a difference in Mexico between um, people who are living in these communities um, and some of the big, you know, some of the Mexican journalists who are from Mexico City and then fly out to these places. So a big difference there. I mean, I was just recently in a state called Veracruz um, mm-hmm. with a guy whose father had run a small town newspaper and had been murdered. And the gunmen, you know, when he was criticizing the local mayor who was in with the drug cartel and the gunman went to his house, like a whole bunch of gunmen, they dragged the father out of the house while the son was there. They dragged him out and murdered him, you know, brutally. And the son took over the newspaper and was doing I went, I would interview him in the house where this happened. And he was sitting there and it was a really creepy community. I mean, it was a very lot of very, you know, like we're talking about like um, dirt roads and he was sitting there. And I said to him, look, and I, I just, I, I, you know, I take my hat off for you um you know how, how how brave you are sitting here doing this so there's a big difference i think um and if you look a lot of the victims um now some of the victims the most high profile journalist victim in mexico was a guy called javier valdez um mm-hmm. who was a prolific kind of legendary writer from sinaloa so also from one of these towns sinaloa is like the cradle of drug cartels here it's a bit like when you hear the word Sicily in Italy for the mafia, you know, yeah. Sicily mafia. Sinaloa, you think the cartels. He was from there. Um, he grew up um, and he wrote these amazing books. He wrote eight books and he used Sinaloan slang and he wrote these mm. stories about. Uh, and and he was the most high profile because he you know he he would be interviewed on on big TV stations and he won kind of awards at Columbia and stuff and won awards for bravery. But he was still from from these kind of communities. So there's a diff, difference between now saying that there are journalists um, like myself traveling around who have been um, killed in Mexico or Central America. There was a, a, a French or Franco-Spanish journalist uh, called Poveda um, who made a famous f- documentary film called La Vida Loca about Marisal Batrucha. And mm-hmm, down mm-hmm. there, there was an American journalist here called Bradley Rowan Wheeler, kind of indie journalist who was filming shootouts and conflicts in Oaxaca and he was shot dead. So there have been, you know, other foreign journalists who have been murdered in the mix as well. Bradley was actually a friend. Um, He was part of a New York, you know, kind of leftist anarchist crew and uh, filmed his own murder. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I I was working for the Associated Press then when it happened and and covered when, when he died and, and, and then, yeah, when he, that last film he did was, was, you know, was very, very chilling and stuff. So yeah, real tragic shooting. There. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. And, and there are moments when international journalism descends. Uh, and I know you've covered a little bit of the, you know, obviously the disappearance of the 43 students in Ayotzinapa. I did, I did go to Guerrero um, and was there for the one year anniversary um, and got a very small taste of the kinds of yes, families and victims. And, but, you know, more broadly, I mean, I really am curious as to, um, where we go from here. You do such an incredible job covering 
the networks of crime and and cartels that are flowing not just through Mexico um, but through the Caribbean as well um, and Colombia and other and elsewhere and you've assessed this problem and it's and it is intriguing and sensational and of course becomes Netflix shows et cetera et cetera et cetera. But I, you know, I, this is a show about politics, also trying to be comedy. But you know, and and I am curious as to like, you know, the policy stuff when it comes to everything from violence, guns. I'm like going to go. Let's talk violence. Let's talk guns. Let's talk immigration. Let's talk prisons. Let's talk the drug war, and let's talk sort of the relationship to the state. Uh, this is a lot to cover, and yeah. you, and then uh, everyone will have their degrees, and we'll be great, and we'll we'll all um. But no, but I think one interesting thing that you that I learned from El Narco, which is your first book, was the ways that um, drug violence often is externalized to south of the border. So drugs flow in, violence goes out. Um, and the you know, it's incredible the way capitalism generally does a good job of externalizing all the consequences, whether it's like, you know, uh, you know, we're going to dump a bunch of toxic sludge into this river, but you're going to have a telephone, you know, like a smartphone or, you know, and it's sort of in the same way, like the United States is pristinely protected because the market is primarily here for drugs. And then all of the violence, the infighting, the beheadings, the the rampant incest, this in, the insane gang gangster warlordism as you document mm. that stays below the border for the most part um how does that function how does that work and yeah yeah sure like so i mean yeah it's, it's been a crazy thing i mean you could think of the 50 years of the, of, of the war on drugs you know we think of so the, this year 1971 was when richard nixon you know got the press there and said like, like drugs are public enemy number one so you think of that evolution of 50 years or you could look at the last 20 years um uh, and uh, you know the period post Cold War in Latin America, um, and the kind of hopes for peace and democracy after the Cold War, and then the violence of the last twenty years. Violence has gone up in Latin America when it went down in many parts of the world. It's been like two million murders in Latin America and, Car- and the Caribbean in the last twenty years. It's like a lot more deaths than, than you know, most parts of the Middle East. Um, so it's been a kind of crazy story or, or crazy situation. I think of it as being a chain of these kind of weird hybrid armed conflicts that have emerged, mm. call them crime wars, like a mix of crime and war and a chain going from, you know, Mexico down through Central America into Colombia, Venezuela, into Brazil, across the Caribbean. They kind of linked up. So the way that, the, the, that it's played out, that the violence has been more down here. Now you've had, you have violence in the United States over drugs um, and, you have violence in Baltimore and St. Louis, and you have these crazy murder rates in those places. But they're like little islands within the United States. Mm. And even within, you know, like Chicago, Chicago South Side, it's more like neighborhoods that are violent. Whereas right. in Mexico, in Central America, you see entire states that are violent or entire countries that are violent. You know, a, a very, very different level of the way it impacts the countries and so forth. Although in those communities themselves, I mean, St. Louis, you look at that murder rate. I mean, that that's the same as some Latin American cities. So what, but why is it mainly played out? I think what happens is in the U S you've got a lot of weird contradictions happening in the United States. So you have the biggest drug consumption market in the world by far. I mean, you in America, I mean, don't get me wrong in, in Europe, you know, Brits and Italian, <laughs> Spanish, we take a lot of drugs. Um, but in America, you win the gold medal um, for drug trading. Um, and, you know, you see the... Uh, yeah, We're the, number one. You know, the, the, according to the White House, the White House has this survey they do. I don't really believe the numbers that well. It's called What Americans Spend on Illegal Drugs. You can, you can, you can look it up. And they, say, they have this figure. It's about $150 billion a year that Americans are spending on illegal drugs. Heroin, cocaine, crystal meth, still marijuana in some places you know, legal fentanyl some places. So you've got $150 billion, huge, huge amount of money. And then Mexico's right there is a bigger supplier, but Colombia's involved and Jamaica's involved, all the other countries getting a piece of the action. Right. So, sorry. So when the violence does happen in the United States, obviously we're talking about poorer black and brown communities. Like that, like that is where that gun violence and drug violence, although it's never really frame that way it's sort of seen as um incredibly 
insular, you know, from our media standpoint, they're just like, well, that's that's what happens here in these very contained areas. Um, and we over police them and that's fine. And occasionally innocent people get gunned down and whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, that's all totally. But I think what happened a lot with the cartels and with organized crime in Latin America and the Caribbean, they discovered that if they commit a lot of murders in the United States, so the Jamaican posses going back to the 80s, they, they were dropping a lot of bodies in the United States. I mean, they, they mm, killed mm-hmm. like 1,400 people across the United States, mainly other rival posse members and so forth. They were like, you know, uh, you know, opening fire in like dance halls, in uh, dance hall parties in, in Florida and stuff. And then they came down very hard on them. This thing called Operation Rum Punch. They came down very hard. They deported loads of the uh, Jamaican posse members or alleged posse members. The Mexican cartels, the biggest operations, I mean, they, they realized that when they drop bodies in the United States, they get heat on them. And in mm. the United States, they've got $150 billion market to make money, to get all of this money. So the best thing they want to do is just keep it calm and move drugs. Now, yeah. the way the violence happening you mentioned is like more like on the retail level of like Baltimore or, or like sort of people are fighting over like real estate for selling drugs in these in these places. But at the same time, you've got a lot of drug markets are functioning in the United States or in the UK, you know, where I'm, I grew up in an area with huge drug consumption in the UK. And there's not that much violence and you can get drug markets functioning without that much violence by... I mean, people in New York where they're like buying or in Los Angeles where they're buying drugs by telephone and they're just going to like they've got like, um, you know, connections and just like and everyone's and everyone's competing and selling in these places. And but south of the border, you've got in Mexico, particularly this huge, huge money being made. The United States, the border towns, particularly Juarez, Tijuana over in Tamaulipas. These are like worth so much money. These are worth billions and billions of dollars. So what happens, you know, over the decades, it has been the most violent people win. So you they spend that. Now we're talking about billions going over decades becomes, you know, is it now topping the trillions mark of how much is pumped in to these areas over years? So what do you do? You build an army. You recruit poor kids from the poor areas of Juarez, of Tijuana, of these places, you give right. you start paying them um, fifty bucks to stand on a corner, and then you know these people are carrying out murders, and then you just get these insane levels of violence, and these people converting to like paramilitary organizations, um, right. paramilitary organized crime, and it's the horror you see right now. Yeah, and you sort of map that like the the line between um, drug cartel, gang, and paramilitary. F- almost political force. Uh, and I think some of the work that you, the writing you've done about the favelas in Brazil is is a wonderful example of that. I wanted to stick with, you know, look, the war on drugs, if you, you know, 50th anniversary, yay. If it started in the fifth, in, in, you know, in the seventies and you call it a war, we don't actually treat it like a war when it comes to how we then treat victims of that war, right? So we haven't, it seems like a one-way war, but we don't, from the United States' perspective, it's like, well, as long as we can pump a bunch of weaponry um, and strong talk into it, that's fine. But in in terms of like, you know, uh, you know, the Afghanistan war, obviously, which we did, you know, or, or or victims of the drug war that we have created ourselves, you know, we are much less sympathetic to victims fleeing those so-called wars. Do you feel like? that's maybe a tactic to not declare it a full-blown war. I mean, I'm not saying we should declare it a full-blown war because then what are we going to do? You know, are we droning people? Are we sending more militia? I mean, you know the way America does it. Um, But it is interesting how we then treat sort of the actual body count as like you're saying it rivals that of the Middle East, but we don't see it as that. Um, Yeah, 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 I mean, great points. So, like, you start off with this war on drugs, which is a bit of a metaphor in some ways when it becomes, you know, when it begins. You know, we have a war on drugs, we go hard on drugs. And right. then it becomes actually militarized, and you, and you see that, um, you know, in, in Florida, and you see kind of, you know, Navy boats and, and stopping the cocaine flying to, flying to Miami, flying to Florida. So when they, when they cut off the cocaine there, it bounces to Mexico. And then you see them, like, paying the Mexican military, the Colombian military to be burning crops and stuff. 
And then it takes on this real force of its own in Latin America and it becomes, and it's weird, it starts becoming the war on drugs and becomes the drug war, like a right. war over drugs, a war right. financed by drugs. And you know, I remember you know, first, you know, writing up, I was writing up to, I worked for the Houston Chronicle, you know, when I was when I was young and dumb. Uh, and they were like saying, you know, cover the drug war in Tamaulipas. It was really just beginning to rise up. And it was like the drug war. And you start, and you start to see it really becomes a war, becomes an armed conflict. So, you know, I believe it is an armed conflict. I mean, whatever, you know, and, and you get into a big, you know, fight about it for a bunch of reasons. Um, but, yeah, you're right. The governments don't want to call it an armed conflict for various reasons. In the United States, if they suddenly say, what well, is an armed conflict happening in Mexico and Central America? then all the refugees fleeing it have their cases really reinforced. So right now you have the judges, they don't want to give asylum to people fleeing drug cartels in Mexico, even drug cartels working with dodgy police or corrupt police in Mexico. They don't want to give them asylum. But then suddenly if you start saying, well, there's a real war down there, or we're going to name these groups terrorists. Well, you're fleeing a terrorist organization that we recognize as a terrorist organization. That changes things. Another thing we, we can get into this later, I mean, the, I mean America's providing all the guns to these people. So you suddenly yeah. say, well, these people who are selling guns are like selling guns to terrorist organizations. So there's kind of a weird thing there of like, um, of, yeah, of how to define this. Um, I believe it's a hybrid armed conflict. I believe we need to find a new vocabulary for it and, and figure out a policy to deal with this stuff. And, and it, yeah. it's that, I mean, I spent 20 years just you know running around here and, you see that nothing seems to work or, or very little seems to work. Uh, and right now we've got kind of some of these more like um, strong men rising up. Uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Bukele in El Salvador right now coming up saying, you know, with these more authoritarian policies in response yeah. to a lot of this violence. Yeah, Bukele, my God, what a hmm. Bitcoin will solve it. Let's just make it all let's enable cartels to use Bitcoin. This, this cannot go wrong. Um, Bukele is the president of El Salvador and just legalized Bitcoin as a, a currency and a tender there, um, which I'm curious about. But I did very minimal reporting on the border for AJ plus when I worked there. Mm -hmm. And one of the things just, just, this was pre Trump. We're looking at what is the border? Like, is there a wall? Oh, there is. Oh, there's a bunch of fence. There's, you know, all kinds of things. And one thing you notice is, my God, the gun stores, yeah. the gun stores on the border is something nobody talks about. I assume, you know, you do a lot of that in your new book, Blood Gun Money. And I am curious as to, um, you know, just talking about the ways that, yeah. So if we are externalizing, you know, the violence, we're also externalizing the the gun sales. So what does that look like and how are U.S. How are American gun manufacturers um, uh, sort of trafficking in the drug war through their the, their sales? Yeah, I mean, it's a crazy, crazy thing. It's mind-boggling that it goes on. I mean, you've got – I mean, we know, like, the last 12 years, 160,000 firearms taken from criminals, including the most violent cartels here, and traced directly to U.S. gun stores, U.S. gun factories. I mean, we know that without a doubt. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. And the estimates are, you know, made and, and is you know, shared by the Mexican government or an institute in San Diego, more than 200,000 firearms a year trafficked from the United States to Mexico. Now, even if it was half that number, I mean, this is a crazy historic case of firearms trafficking. I mean, you've just got guns, an iron river of guns flowing down from the United States to Mexico, and then it carries on into Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, and then down to Colombia, Venezuela, Brazil, you know, this kind of huge amount of guns keeps bouncing through these places. Um, and and to extremely violent, you know, criminals and extremely violent conflict and how this just cannot be confronted or, 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 or the in the United States, how this is failed to be confronted, confronted. And in the current administration, they're failing to confront this still. And there's things they can do which they could have done yesterday. I mean, beginning with things like universal background checks, which mm. is supported by you know the vast you know ninety percent of Americans in some surveys, eighty nine percent of Americans, the majority of conservatives, the majority of gun owners, and they're still not doing those kind of basic things. So yeah, it, it's it's crazy, it's mind boggling, it's kind of frustrating, but it, it's it's a reality. 
And so even a background check, obviously, like we in the United States have plenty of gun violence to go around, but it, you know, often um, it's, it is of course the mass shootings that get the headlines versus, you know, one or two or in inner cities where it's like, okay, well that's drug related, you know? Um, But right. I think that when you look at someplace like the Northern Triangle or Mexico or when, you know, and potentially, and I'm curious if you think the United States could be headed this way, if we don't do something, it's like, well, you need to avoid Nevada when, you know, on your trip, because it's like if Sinaloa were, you know, well, yeah. d- mm, don't go to Illinois because the whole yeah. state is overrun, you know? That's the um, yeah. Right. And, but in terms of the gun sales, I mean, yeah, you talk about these nine millimeter kids with nine millimeters, Kalishnikovs, rocket launchers. So w- what are, I, I guess maybe just, let me ask you, what are those things that you're like beyond background checks? Everyone know, I mean, this is well known. DEA, Border Patrol, which is the which is the largest federal law enforcement agency in this country, they know that there are weapons flowing into Mexico, correct? Yeah, yeah, sure. So so you see this, um, the way I see this, you have in the United States the biggest legal firearms market in the world by far. Um, there's an estimated, the last estimate was 393 million guns in civilian hands in the United States. It's more than the next 25 countries combined. Um, but the way guns play out, there's a lot of factors. When you look, when you get into this, there's a lot of factors. I mean, now I, there's less problem if people, you know, there's a lot of individual collectors with lots of guns. I've talked to a guy who had 200 guns stashed in his basement. So, you know, you have people, individuals with a bunch of guns. To be fair, it's more dangerous when it's people who are determined murderers taking guns. Now, the cartels, a lot of these, you know, gangs, the MS-13, they are people who, who want to commit murder, who openly, that's what they want, that's what they do. They're committing murder. So why is the US industry selling them loads of guns? And you see cases, I mean, what's kind of staggering when you get into this is then you find out, you know, cases that somebody walks into a, a place and buys 85 firearms in a single purchase. You know, what, and they're for gangs. Um, somebody buying, um, spending half a million dollars one individual person going around buying shops half a million dollars. People buying guns, you know, a, a supposedly you know, 23 year old kid with cash buying 50 cows, which they fire bullets this size and, and, and spending $15,000 in cash for these things. So, why is that happening? You know, why is there a person in Florida um, move, trafficking a thousand guns? Right. And you start seeing these really crazy things, even beyond like, you know, you know. People can have gun their gun rights, Second Amendment rights, but beyond that, how come this is happening? How come this trafficking is happening so blatantly? And you see when it you know comes, it like you know the US is particularly against the gut, drugs and guns, which are kind of entwined, like I call them like two venomous plants, like wrapped around each other. Mm-hmm. You see these kind of crazy things happening, um, uh, and like with the universal background check, it's like a basic idea. That you know you've got a, a law and you have you know, have to have a background check and if the person's you know um, you know is a, is a, a, a criminal who's been in prison for for using you know for gun violence they can't buy a gun and then that is not applied so people can can buy guns so I interviewed one trafficker in prison in Ciudad Juarez Mexico who was traveling every weekend from Ciudad Juarez well, from Chihuahua to gun shows in the Dallas area. And was buying a whole bunch of AR-15s and driving them back, and was showing no paperwork at all. Um, and he and he called it like a black market. It's more like a grey market, really. And he explained the method. So we went and did this myself with, with a recorder. Went to these gun shows. Went to people, and yeah, they said, yeah, you can buy a gun, no ID, no paperwork whatsoever. You can buy our AR-15s, and you have it. And yeah. then, I mean, they said they're abusing these laws, finding these holes. And the fact that 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 is not stopped, it's kind of frustrating. Um, it shows politics is quite broken, I think, in a lot of places. Uh, but in the in the US, politics is broken about solving problems. Um, you know, how come these basic things can't be fixed? I mean, you just named two of the most um, well-known loopholes when it comes to gun violence and and gun sales in the United States, which are uh, the gun show uh, loophole and the background checks loophole. And no one is saying that 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 would full stop 
foolproof, you know, guns getting in the hands of cartels or dangerous murderers. But my God, you need to start somewhere. What is so fascinating and ironic about all this is I'm sure you met and you saw a lot of uh, Trump Republicans who hate them some immigrants. They absolutely Mm. hate immigrants. They are terrified of, you know, caravans of mothers and children looking for work and survival. Um, And yet they also love their guns. And if anyone wants to close a loophole about, you know, selling a certain, you know, amount of guns at at gun shows or limiting it or a background check, you know, they're the first ones to be literally up in arms over it. So how do you square that? Is is that fascinating to you to, to, to know that like that our policies around guns don't stop at the border, that they go through the border and the more lax we are, the more we're feeding into a system that's destabilizing all of the Americas and is coming back to bite us, you know, through, you know, massive immigration, waves of immigration. Yeah, I mean, totally. You see these these, these circles of these things and, the, and, and these, so, you know, for t- sometimes you see the, the, big, the biggest issues in the United States of being guns and being immigration or, or, or undocumented migrants and refugees. And these two big issues are linked. And so you see these these guns flowing down again. It's a it's an iron river of guns. And then if you look at some of the people on that on the on the migrant trail, I mean, you see people fleeing Honduras. You know, one uh, I mean, a, a tragic one tragic uh, profile. I look at it, it is a, a a girl when she was twelve. She was hit by a stray bullet in Honduras, and she was hit. Um, the bullet hit her in the stomach. Um, went through her her. Her, her waist and left her paralyzed from the waist down. Okay. So she was living, she couldn't go to school. Tragic case. She finally died at, at 17. And so people fleeing that violence. And I saw one woman who's also paralyzed from the waist down with some feeling in her foot being carried between her, her husband and a friend carrying her on a migrant trail. Another guy being shot, you know, shot in both legs for being in the wrong place. So loads of people literally fleeing gun violence and coming as refugees and and then that same circle coming back and these obviously these big contradictions between being pro law enforcement but being and then with you know being so pro gun you're kind of anti law enforcement over guns so you get these right. kind of kind of things I mean a way to fix it I mean I you see there is a way and it's like just trying to say well this is a problem and there's pragmatic things you can do to deal with it you know you, you shouldn't be just the basic stuff you really want to be selling guns. To the most violent criminals, um, but also the, you know the 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 drug policy itself, the war on drugs itself mm-hmm. is faulted. You know from the core. I mean, it just it's not working. I, I think now. I mean, I think of the war on drugs. It was done with enthusiasm for for about the first thirty years. So if we see, you know, Richard Nixon kicked it off in seventy one, and he had Reagan really got into it in a big way. And then we had, you know, under Clinton as well, there was still, yeah. like, you know, really kind of into this. And I think it kind of died or the kind of American politicians kind of after about 9-11. Since then, and even with the latest the latest opioid epidemic in the United States, yeah, there, there isn't really enthusiasm for like war on drugs anymore. That's more said by us critics than by the actual, you know, and, and even you know, I've I've had a, an email. You know, I've, I've been reached out by some people in the, the Washington Drug Office. You say, can we start having you know, maybe have some conversations? And and I, and I think there's people there. They're not really enthusiastic about these policies anymore. But it's more like a zombie war on drugs. It kind of yeah. keeps stumbling on anyway. You know, it's still like and and there are some you know genuine problems like what do you do about heroin? You know, how can we deal with heroin? Um, you know, we're we gonna keep on fighting and, and, and allow this illegal market on heroin to make all these gangsters rich who are then murdering people and then working like paramilitaries and, and then you know disappearing 43 students in Guerrero or are we going to establish shops where people can sell heroin but then that, that gets kind of messy so I'm totally uh, against the war on drugs conceptually and in, and in favor of drug policy reform you know I mean accepting that the, the, the current policies don't work and trying to but then we do need to get to a hard conversation about yeah. how we kind of cr- how we would create a world with drugs where you know what can be legal what can't be legal but like we have to try and figure out a better way of helping addicts and helping people with drug problems 
It's sort of the way, though, that I think about, you know, any anything that um, is massive change that that we're always sort of like three steps ahead and we're like, yeah, buddy, but let's do step one. If you're like, mm-hmm. what are you going to make gas cars illegal to stop climate change? I was like, no, no, not yet. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, let's do the first let's stop d- digging fracking wells that is you know contributing to climate change like let's mm-hmm. do no harm and it seems like the drug war is similar it's like oh you're just gonna you know legalize everything and then heroin's everywhere it's like no but like we can do better right now there are mm-hmm. bodies already dropping and people already dying from what is currently going on to say nothing of the drugs themselves but of the way that they are trafficked and I guess I just wanted to ask you, when it comes to the drug war, the war on drugs, which I love that you talk about how that morphed, um, and the amount of money that not only comes through, like, yeah, okay, sure, sure, there's weapons dealers, independent folks, stores, manufacturers. What about the U.S. military? What about the money we've put into military support? And how did those that weaponry end up supporting the cartels themselves? Yeah, sure. So uh, you had this murder initiative which was, mm-hmm. I mean, you had, first of all, you had Plan Colombia, and that was the U.S. pumping a bunch of money into the Colombian military. Now, really, Plan Colombia was sold to the American public or, you know, to Congress as being against drugs and drug cartels, but really it was about hitting down a leftist insurgency in Colombia. It was about hitting the, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia to FARC. And it kind of succeeded in knocking down the FARC, but drug trafficking carried on and cocaine still put gums out of Colombia. I mean, it's still snowing everywhere. I mean, Europe's going crazy for cocaine right now. Huge market. Uh, the United States still taking a lot of cocaine. The Americans now are into crystal meth and heroin and fentanyl, a bunch of other stuff. So, and then it comes, comes to Mexico and you have uh, the Merida Initiative, which which starts around 2006, 2007. 2007 and it is under President Felipe Calderon, now, I interviewed him about this. In fact, an interview for the latest book, uh, I sat down and talked about this and about various things with the guns and so forth. And it was actually Mexico's idea. He says it wasn't actually the U.S. imposing this like mm. the U.S. did a lot before. I mean, if you go back to the 80s, the U.S. would like impose on countries, say, unless you do what we say against drugs, we're not going to certify you and we're going to punish you. So we're going to punish you into but in the 2000s, a bit different, Felipe Calderon went to the U.S. and said, like, oh, yeah, we, we can, we can you know, hit these cartels. You've got to take responsibility because it's Americans buying all these drugs. So give me a bunch of funky gear. I mean, he said, he said, he said, he said I want all of the stuff I see in the, in, in, the, uh, in the program 24, on the TV show 24. I want all of that gear. This is what he said. To, he said, he said to, to George. To, and to, Kiefer. Yeah, throw in Kiefer Sutherland yeah, too, please. Yeah, You're like, yeah. take him. Why not? Take him. So they, they've got all this stuff, uh, you know, Black Hawk headed top, uh, Black Hawk headed top is worth that gear. Now, the problem is, is the Mexican military, I mean, first you have the problem that then the Mexican military, some of them are working with drug cartels. Right. So they're using all this funky gear they've got, but to kill rival drug cartels. And then even when they're not working with rival drug cartels, they're committing massacres all over the place. So, and then the cart, some of them are just, you know, selling those guns to the cartels. So, so it gets, it gets, it gets very, very messy. Yeah. And we obviously saw that play out in Ayotzinapa. I mean, in Guerrero, Mm. um, uh, in Iguala specifically with the 43 students who disappeared. And, you know, we knew that the mayor and his wife were in involved with the drug cartels and that's still sort of an open mystery, um, as to exactly what happened and why they targeted them. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the, the police state, what's interesting is that the police, I mean, and everyone knew it, are not reliable actors. So funneling massive amounts of machinery and money into them is not going to get you anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it might make things actually worse. But I'm also curious as to, you know, the prison industrial complex's role in all of this, you know, yeah. and like, I know it's not the same in Mexico and in, in Central America as it is in the United States in terms of the... Um, just how punitive and how ridiculous it, it truly is uh, and unnecessary with the sort of smallest uh, amounts of drugs that are, you know, that, that people traffic or sell. Um, but yeah, like what, 
what is the function of the prison system in Central America? Because I know you were you visited prisons, you visit with hardened criminals and murderers who mm. are armed while they're in, you know, yeah. while they're being while they're locked up, they're running gangs while they're locked up. And also the prison system, as you document, has contributed to the creation of gangs, as in with the Mara Salvatrucha, yeah. you know. Uh, which was is a Salvadoran gang and the massive amounts of deportations from LA prisons back to El Salvador only further grew their ranks. Um, So when it comes to the punitive stuff, let's forget the drug war and the legalization stuff, but yeah, like where, where, what are the holes in that? And uh, how does that differ in your, you know, in South America, Latin America? Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a double tragedy that you see in that there's a lot of, of very violent murderers on the street here, and I'm talking about you know violent criminals who've committed multiple rapes, murders, massacres, some some bad people, and there's impunity and they're on the street. So you get some places like Guerrero states, one of the worst, where like if you commit a murder, you've got about a one in fifty chance of being caught doing it. So on one side, you've got that, like a lot of, you know, the, the, like fail, fail, complete failure to really just, um, you know, deliver justice. On the other side, you've got these kind of brutal prisons and a lot of, you know, sometimes innocent people, some horrific cases of innocent people get railroaded, you know, some terrible miscarriages of justices, justice here. And yeah, the prisons are crazy. Um, the one in Honduras, uh, one of the ones in Honduras I went into, was one of the craziest prisons I've been into where I went in and, and you know, you have these fighting dogs in the prison. And I started start walking in and it's like a really crowded prison. And I started feeling like this kind of thing at my leg. And there's like these really vicious fighting dogs that the prisoners have themselves to have like these like dog fights. And I was like, you know, what's that dog called? And they're like, that dog's called Sicario. That, you know, like, you know, like killer, you know, that. And, and then like, the girlfriends are in the prison with them or the wives in the prison with them. And yeah, then, and then, then there are people that you know openly carrying like oozes on their chest and with grenades and stuff, and like real brutal violence. I mean, crazy violence happening in there. I mean, without being too graphic, I mean, there was this, this one. There's a mural of a prison leader there who, who'd been uh, subsequently murdered. But one somebody challenged his power in the prison and he decapitated them and, and like threw the head over the wall. And so this kind of brutality happening. And, people living without brutality. So you've got a kind of double tragedy. Yeah, I mean, it's not working. The problem is, with a lot of this stuff is, loads of it's not working, but I don't know, what is the solution? You know, how do you make this better? And it's like, you kind of say the tragedy of, of both both people suffering the impunity or, or really what violent crime means and that really hurting people but also people suffering the repression of soldiers coming into their communities and killing people and like prisons that don't work and are like, you know, sometimes putting innocent people in these prisons. Right. I mean, and, and, you know, in the ways that we've got legalized bribery through lobbying, you know, in the States, you know, whenever, at least when I was living in Latin America, they were like, well, you guys have legalized bribery. We've got bribery too. Um, It's just not always legal. And I think another thing that is fascinating to me is the, obviously the over the political, and, you know, there needs to be the political will, but that piece of it and the ways that, you know, whether it is, I know not every single state is compromised in the way Guerrero was and in the way the, the mayor of Iguala was, but it was such a perfect example of every single every single tier of political um, hierarchy and military hierarchy being involved in this violent, heinous crime uh, uh you know, to move drugs. And, and I guess I'm wondering, you know, what will it take for a country like Mexico to have the political will, considering that cartels also run a lot of money and can make or break someone's political career. And, and I guess I'm curious also about Manuel Lopez Obrador and what, you know, what he's, has he changed the trajectory at all? Um, And how do you, when there's so much, you know, dark money, mm-hmm. <laughs> not dark money, but illegal money is not a super pack here. There's not a, you know, a Sinaloa super pack, but that'd be funny. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, how, how politicians are also bought and sold by this entire system. 
Yeah, I mean, the corruption goes so deep here. A lot of places it's like state capture, you could call it, or like narc, you know, you start using the word like narco states. Um, I mean, just one example of many of how crazy it is. I was in one city in, in a border, border town in Mexico, and we had to talk to the cartel member who was like, he, 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 was, he was telling other journalists we were coming into town and not to talk to us. We had to talk to him to negotiate the fact we're actually allowed to be in this town and, and film some stuff. And eventually we kind of calmed it down with a guy and he said, yeah, yeah, you're fine. He goes, any problem with the police, you call me. Like he's above the police, above the local police. So you get kind of levels where you have a, like a local police force and the cartels above them now kind of running them. Um, and, you know, you've got police commanders who are active cartel members who would teach, you know, training young cartel members how to commit atrocities. And then all the way up, you know, you've got these, you know, crazy stuff where the guy who was really the number two, uh, the kind of main head of the drug war under Felipe Calderon, who we talked about earlier, uh, Genaro Garcia Luna is currently in prison in the United States on drug, drug trafficking charges. So you got mm. this, you know, this guy. I interviewed him, you know, some years ago. So you're interviewing these people, these cops, these policymakers, and then you know, a few years later they're in prison for like drug trafficking. Um, so who, you know, how can you believe, or how how is this state so captured? How do you get out of that? Um, and and it, and it's very very, you know, it, it's very hard. It's like a kind of, um, you know, that what do they call that? The Gordian knot. That knot you kind of it's impossible to to undo. Um, so yeah, how do you find a way out of this? Now get to the get to the current president, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. I've been following him for twenty years. Yeah. Um, I've been to his his hometown and talked to the guy, you know the guys he played baseball with as a kid and kind of followed his career as mayor of Mexico City. And been to like literally hundreds of his events, and I kind of liked his discourse originally. His kind of idea of being yeah. You've got this mafia of power at the top with all the money and the rest of the people are left out and you've got to kind of get rid of corruption and kind of, you know, clean the system. And, you know, it sounded good. Unfortunately, the reality is, is I don't really see evidence that he's really changing things. An example is that for his party, his party is called Morena Party, for his party, you had somebody running for mayor in the local elections who was literally wanted in the United States on drug trafficking charges. Oh, wow. Um, now, and people say, well, you know, it's, well, so it's like, can't you find somebody else who's not wanted on drug trafficking charges to run from there? <laughs> <laughs> somebody out there, you know, it's like, so like, you know, there's still, you know, you still see, um, and, and has there been, you, still, you know, like rural efforts to clean up these places um, and, and and the violence continues, you know. Now it, it's it's plateau. I can't blame. I don't want to blame it all on the current president, but sure. it ha he hasn't got a big, you know, solution to this. Um, so, so yeah, it's it's very very tough. And and how is? I mean, I think that both Republicans and Democrats have bought into this idea that we should keep paying you know, keep paying Mexico to stop migrants who yeah. are fleeing dr these drug crime wars in various levels, whether in Honduras, El Salvador, et cetera. But like, how has that impacted Mexican society? And, and um, you know, I would imagine it would feel like there are now, you know, s more precarious people left in precarious situations who are even still ripe for like, um, you know, being swept up into cartel worlds or drug running, etc. Um, but anyway, yeah, I don't know if you have thoughts on on yeah. that whole process. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think if you look at the the migrant crises, um, and, and there's been you know three migrant crises, in the, you know, the crises, in, and I'll give that put that in inverted commas, but three migrant crises in the last seven years. You had 2014 and mm -hmm. uh, um, Obama. And, and that was when it was all the children. Then you had the 2018, 19 under Trump and the massive caravans. And that was when it got really big. And then just a couple of years later, you got like 2021 again, and right as Biden comes in. So this is big things. Now, a lot of this is, I think, in Central America, you've seen a real meltdown, particularly in Honduras. That's been the worst. You know, you, you, know, you covered this. You know that a huge amount of the numbers are going to speak to people from Honduras. 
there's a bunch of other countries. You've also got El Salvador, Guatemala, now Nicaragua, because of, you know that country is really cracking down hard, becoming very authoritarian, and people are fleeing that. But Honduras has seen a real meltdown. I think Honduras is perhaps after Venezuela's, you know, also seen a lot of emigration in Venezuela in, 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 in a bad way. But Honduras yeah. has been in a real meltdown. And and so that's not talk about a narco state in Honduras. The president of Honduras himself has been accused in the U.S. courts of being involved in drug trafficking. The president of the country, and then people are you know very extremely violent there. People fleeing that now, um, as you say, these last three migrant crises, every you know Obama and then Trump and then Biden did the same thing. They went to Mexico and said, "You stop these. You stop the Central Americans coming. We'll give you money. We, you are, we're your biggest trading partner." And Mexico, all, all three, you know, all presidents in Mexico, happy to do this. Um, sadly, and and and, all, and anybody in the White House, and I think that's a sad reality. I, I don't see that changing soon. Right. Um, it's a sad situation. Right. And you have Kamala Harris saying, don't come, you know, yeah, and yeah. she, you know, and, and, and there is an effort to pour money into root causes, as they say, quote unquote, root causes, you know, it's like, well, we're going to fund this uh, school for girls here in, uh, in El Salvador. And that sort of reminds me of, you know, the school for girls in Afghanistan. It's like, yeah. what are you actually doing here? Who are you trying to save? What is this about? And you started this originally by saying, you know, the United States doesn't call, you know, these gangs and cartels terrorists. And, you know, it, on the one hand, looking at how the war on terror has gone, you're like, thank God they're not yeah. calling them terrorists. And then number two, you're like, yeah, but at least there's way more attention. You know, I mean, you you know, if if the uh, these cartels were Muslim, you know, would we have rooted them out by now? Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, well, I think yeah. you know the the, U, the U.S. I mean, you know, the idea that U.S. could do drone strikes anyway and knock out the cartels is a is also a fantasy because there's just so many of these. It's not. It's not like you've got like one little group of Al Qaeda. I mean, you know, you've got hundreds of thousands of people in Mexico working for the cartels. You know, maybe more than. But but one thing's interesting about about Kamala Harris and saying that and. And I think the critiques of that in the United States um, is, again, gets back to how about the gun issue? How about that as a start? How about if you say, okay, yeah, I mean, you know, I understand the reality is that the United States is not going to, um, you know, the, the level of, of, of refugees potentially can come over the southern border is very large. Yeah. But if you argue, okay, we're going to try and resolve the problems in these countries, they so don't have to flee. How about beginning with that? gun trafficking yeah. and you know people see you know talk and I, and I saw also i mean i, I wonder with alejandro casio cortez on this and she, i saw her tweeting about like well uh, back in the 80s they were supporting regimes and that's true but how about right now in 2021 what's happening right now i mean as we speak right now there's guns flowing over the border and and, and the congress has got the power to change this so why yeah. again why is it, uh, people not saying you know all, all with the war on drugs and with the drug consumption saying okay we've got to take responsibility we can't allow this amount of drug money to flow south how about we've got to give treatment to all of the addicts in in you know and 90 percent of addicts in the united states do not receive treatment so how about like confronting this stuff right now um rather than, you know and, and, and maybe that rather than just saying like you say um, you know, create a school for girls in, in, in Honduras and, and it's like really going to change the fundamental problems in that country. That's such a good point. I also think that sort of leftists can be a little bit lazy and progressives because we keep on pointing to the 80s, you know, as, okay, well, what about when we supported this dictator or what yeah. about the Contras or what about this and that? And you're right that it, it continues today uh, in the money and in the weaponry uh, keeps on flowing and we don't need to reach back as far as the 80s. I, I want to respect your time and, and let you go, Jan, but I want to ask you about Haiti. I mean, talk about a not the not thing you were talking about. I mean, every day we're getting new details about what happened and the assassination of the president, Jovenel Moise. And it seems like there was a Colombian trained or Colombian based um, mercenary squad, essentially. And, and there are links to um, Haitian, you know, Haitian Americans, American Haitians in Florida. I mean, the ties on this are just 
everywhere and and bizarre it's like a you wonder whose fingerprints are on it i know you've done a lot of work in in jamaica and you've got a great chapter about that in gangster warlords but what can you tell us about haiti my instinct is like it's got to be drug related there's something drug related you know you don't you know but what 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 has been your reaction and 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 as you followed it yeah i mean huge story um this is a very important story goes a lot of ways i mean so, I mean, the first little thing about the Colombian mercenaries, I mean, the Colombians uh, are some of the best military on the continent in, in the world. I mean, best in terms of how they can actually do do fighting. A lot of they, they, they a lot of them retire at like 41. There's a lot of ex-Colombian armed forces. But there's a lot of funny stories about this, that maybe they were hired for this job and didn't even know really what it was until the day. They kind of suddenly, you know, according to some of the, the, these things, but... There's certainly a lot of Colombian mercenaries, a lot of um, you know, a lot, a lot of mercenaries across the continent. I mean, now you've got a lot of people being arrested and a very jumbled investigation. Um, you know, on the side of the president and his wife, there's now kind of portrayal of oh, he was somebody who was kind of a champion of the poor, challenging the system, and that's why they killed him. I don't think his record really shows that that much. He was kind of still actually kind of part of the system. um, But he obviously upset some people, some powerful people. I think one of the things this shows is right now, if you look across Latin America and the Caribbean, you're seeing, I mean, bad days for democracy. I mean, look Mm -hmm. what's happening in in Nicaragua, um, the clampdowns on the press, on the opposition there in Honduras, in El Salvador, in Brazil, in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. I mean, right across. And a few years ago, there was kind of an idea, well, we're kind of moving to democracy and there'd be pressure put on certain things. Um, but now that's not the case. Everyone can kind of get away with this. Uh, and so in Haiti, I think, you know, some people in Haiti could think, oh, we can take out the president if we don't like him. I think the mm-hmm. atmosphere has changed. Um, and, you know, you've got this, internal investigation which is a mess and people involved in the investigation itself so they've been threatened and run um so is it powerful people within the system have killed the the president and kind of maneuvered this and will there be any comeback on whoever takes power in haiti you know maybe not right no and it's incredible the way that like haiti how many billions of dollars has the united states poured into haiti you know Um, not, you know, this is not benevolence. There is a stick at the end of the carrot. It's, you know, cheap labor, et cetera. Mm. Uh, the Clintons had a huge role in that. Mm. Uh, and then you've got a place like Honduras and the 2009 coup against Manuel yeah. Zelaya and that which kicked off a lot of sort of the the, the lawlessness. You know, I'm not saying mm. Zelaya was a saint at all, but, you know, he obviously was center left and that pissed a lot of people off, including his own government and his parliament or whatever. You know, and the military there. So it's, you know, the United States has a crucial role to play in, but it cho- where it chooses to bring down which morals. Yeah, is- yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, no, I mean, like what the US policy should be is not is not easy either. I think because in a way you've got like a double bind that like um, the US, um, it, you know, it's bad when it like, tolerates or just allows like, a, a bunch of, you know, repression in a country. But if the US then tries to get involved to make things better, it often just makes things worse. You know, you know it doesn't... Um, ben, I talking about Mamo Salah, I was there, I covered that coup in 2009. And one of the most surreal things I covered was when um, I was there at the, in, in Tegucigalpa, in Honduras, at the airport, and then he attempted to f- fly back in on a right. Venezuelan plane, I think. And, he, you know, his supporters tried to take over the airport, then the, then the military started shooting right where I was. They they shot. It's like an eighteen year old protester who got shot in the head, and and then his plane was just like doing these circles round. You could see it in the air there, but like a real surreal, crazy thing to cover. Jesus, that's incredible. Um, well, kids don't do drugs, and um, not not the Nancy Reagan kind of don't do drugs, but the like you know, hey. This Coke has a lot of blood on it. You don't do drugs. Um, I often joke that I would do cocaine if it were locally sourced and harm-free, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, and, and yeah, and real, you know, honest drug policy. I, I think of, I did a little coverage of Uruguay's legalization of marijuana, and I thought that was an incredible model that they actually studied other models. Um mm. 
you know, and they were like, I don't know about all these gummies in Colorado. There's way too much THC out there, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but right, there is a there is a lot that can be done that isn't just, okay, well, let's free for all and then have ads for heroin everywhere. No, no. Yeah. Um, but the current level of violence, uh, Yoan, you've you've covered and it is I'm sure you've seen far too much. And of course, the people of the countries uh, that you've covered have also experienced too much. Um, but thank you so much for joining me. Um, is there anything else other than your three awesome books that you want to plug? Uh, I mean, no, just do other books. So you can, you can just see my stuff on my website, yoangrillo.com or on Twitter. I've got a weird name, so it's kind of easy to find, I-O-A-N-G-R-I-L-L-O. So yeah, you just search it up because my stories, I'll see my stuff around the place. Yo, Angrillo, thank you so much for your time. Be very well and uh, stay dry. It sounds like there's a massive like storm in Mexico City. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, what is when it rains a lot? You say it's Tlaloc. Tlaloc was so like a god of rain here. So it's like a Tlaloc, like pouring down some water. But that's that's good because you know, we, we need we need water. It's a bit of a drought in a lot of Mexico. So yeah, we need water right now. You need water. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much. Take very good care. Appreciate you and your time. And thank you all for being here. Oh, my God. Yoan Grillo, everyone. Uh, listen, read his books. I listened to his El Narco. It was chilling. Um, it was awesome. And the guy puts himself on the line um, to give us some of these insights. So thank you so much for being here, for being a supporter. I'm in this weird space. Um, be very, very well. Take good care. And uh, remember, uh, don't just bitch about it. Be about it. Bye.